Hello there, and welcome to the SLP Now podcast, where we share practical therapy tips and ideas for busy speech-language pathologists. Grab your favorite beverage and sit back as we dive into this week's episode. Hey guys, welcome to the SLP Now podcast. I am so incredibly excited to be chatting with Lauren DiBiase today. Lauren is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, and she's also a certified LSLS auditory verbal therapist. And if you don't know what LSLS is, like I didn't, it's a language and spoken language specialist. Um, She is also a teacher author, so very busy, accomplished uh, SLP here. Uh, She began her career in a a school for the deaf before transitioning to the New York City Department of Education, where she now works in the largest special education district in the United States. Her passion for creating and sharing resources paired with her devotion to supporting students with special needs has led her to create her Teachers Pay Teachers store, where she offers a variety of amazing resources to help all of us busy SLPs serve our students. Um, And we will link to her store in the show notes in case you want to check that out. Um, But without further ado, let's hear from Lauren and dive into all things hearing. Hi, Marisha. Yes, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to be here and to talk to all of um, people who listen to you. And I'm especially excited because we've been getting a lot of questions about this population and I've dabbled a little bit, just enough to get dangerous, but I just knew that you would be the perfect person to break down these different questions. So I can't wait. Um, But before we dive into all of the logistics and all of the strategies and juicy tips, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience as an SLP. we talked a little bit about where you work, um, but how did you end up learning so much about working with students with hearing loss and how did you go through, like, how did you fall into all of those different certifications and that entire process would be amazing just to get a quick glimpse that. Yeah. So I always had like a very strong interest in American sign language. And I try to think back to like, when did it start? And Growing up, I would go to camp and we would learn songs in sign language. And then my very first job, I worked at TJ Maxx. And I remember there was an interaction with a customer who was deaf um, and we just could not understand one another. And the customer was frustrated and I felt terrible. And so that kind of like um, encouraged me as soon as I started college to sign up for ASL 1. And so my college, Hofstra University, they offered ASL one through four, but when I finished that, I wanted to learn more. So I signed up for like night school. It was like an adult continuing education, deaf studies certification, um, which led me through ASL one through eight and deaf studies and deaf culture. And it really gave me a strong background in that area um, while taking speech language pathology classes. So I graduated with a bachelor's in speech language hearing sciences, but also with this deaf studies certification. Um, And then when I graduated with my master's, I really wanted to find a way to kind of combine my love of ASL and my love of speech language pathology. And so 
I managed to get a CFY at this school for the deaf um, after applying to over 60 positions. I live in um, a place where it's really hard. That there's like a, there's just no jobs. Um, and on the interview, they asked me if I would be willing to start going for AVT certification. And I had no idea what it was. So of course I said, absolutely. It's something I'm very interested in. And that's kind of how I got started. Once they hired me, um, I found out what AVT certification was, and it's basically a certification through AG Bell, the Alexander Graham Bell organization. And it helps SLPs or teacher of the deaf or, um, administrators become specialists working with children who have a hearing loss, who want to go down the pathway of learning to listen and then listening to learn. It's a four-year process. Um, you have to take like over a hundred hours of continuing ed class. Um, I'm sorry, CEUs. You have to have a mentor. You need to have many hours documented of working with children who are deaf or hard of hearing. And then after all of these requirements, after you meet them, there's a very large exam. And then when you pass the exam, you become certified. So it's kind of unusual to have an auditory verbal therapist who is bilingual in American Sign Language. Um, But here I am. (laughs) That is so amazing. And I had no idea that it's like a second CF almost. (laughs) That's a lot of extra. Yes. That's amazing. And that's so cool. That makes it even more special for us to hear from you. Thank you. Um, Okay. So now let's get into some of the tips. So I think a lot of us are just struggling knowing where to start. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the easiest ways to kind of start talking about it is how can we even identify these students on our caseload? Like maybe if they don't even have a diagnosed hearing loss yet, Mm -hmm. like what steps can we take to be proactive there and how do we know what to look for? That's a really great question because a lot of times um, children are going unidentified despite the newborn hearing screening that's now in place in all hospitals in the USA um, for a variety of reasons. Sometimes um, they're getting, um, they're passing when, when it's like a false, they're falsely passing these tests or maybe they're not passing, but the parents are not bringing them back for the second appointment. Or um, I know where I work, I have a large number of students who have recently immigrated from other countries where they don't have a newborn hearing screening. So they were not screened and they they missed noticing that their child has a hearing loss. So um, here's a couple of ways that you might start getting suspicious that maybe your student should go for a screening or for a full audiogram. Um, and it's important to remember that these things you might be noticing, they're also seen in children with other special needs, such as autism or um, a language disorder. That's why if your kid has like one or two of the things I'm naming, it's not such a red flag, but if you're seeing like seven, eight, nine, like then I'd start to look more into it. So, um, Things like the child is not responding to their name or not turning or reacting to loud noises. Um, And obviously you can sabotage this by like dropping something heavy and seeing if they're turning. Um, In terms of their speech, this gets a little tricky because 
our schools have trained us like, oh, if a child is omitting the S, you know, maybe they have final consonant deletion or maybe they just can't, you know, say the S. That's why they're not using it. But if a child is omitting S, F, um, SH, those high frequency sounds, that is a red flag. Or if they're omitting morphological markers like plural S, possessive S, the past ED, those sounds Again, like in school, we're taught that they're morphemes, but we're never really taught that those sounds are not acoustically salient. So those are the sounds your kids with hearing loss are not going to pick up. And if they can't hear them, they're not going to use them. Uh, Children with hearing loss also, often they'll skip the function words. So, you know, the words and, the, or. Again, those words are not as acoustically salient as content words. Um, What else? Oh, N and M, if they're confusing those, again, I I never learned this in school and I so wish that that I had those sounds. There's something called a nasal murmur and kids with hearing loss will frequently confuse those two sounds. Um, Kids with hearing loss are your kids who might sound robotic. Again, this could be a sign of a kid with autism, but it also could be a kid with hearing loss. Poor intonation, poor rhythm, poor volume modulation. Uh, Those are all red flags. Um, Also, if they don't socialize well in noisy environments or if they look like they have poor attention, I mean, that could be an attention deficit, but it could be hearing loss. And then your kids who have difficulty following directions, it's a red flag. And then the only other thing that I really can think of that's like a huge red flag is your kids who are always out for ear infections. Are they rubbing their ears? Is there discharge? Um, And then, of course, if there's a family history, if if you meet a parent and you see that the parent has a hearing loss, that also would would be a cause for a potential questioning about whether maybe your student has a hearing loss, you know? Yeah, so helpful. And I really like that breakdown of things that we notice and see all the time and just kind of keeping that in the back of our heads. Okay, if we're seeing that they're leaving off the S's or they're leaving mm-hmm. off function words, or if we're seeing a number of those different things, just to remember that that's something else that we might want to look into. Um, exactly. And, and being proactive can be incredibly helpful and an easy solution. Yeah. And I <laughs> think that, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. I think that also, you know, I only had one class in my graduate program that touched on hearing loss. And I, I think that might be pretty similar countrywide or worldwide that there's just, because it's such a small niche and, you know, grad school is just like survival. So I feel like you don't even remember half of what you learn. I wish that there was like just a little bit more attention given on it, especially with, um, you know, I don't know about where you're from, but right now we're having like a major measles outbreak in on Long Island and in the city. And so, you know, there's going to be an influx of kids with hearing loss coming into our schools. So I just, I hope that um, these red flags are helpful for your followers. Know what to listen to, listen for. Yeah, no, I definitely took some notes and we'll kind of put that on a sticky note just to remind <laughs> myself too, just to make sure, because we do have a lot of different things going on. Mm-hmm. But um, it's especially great, like if you're feeling, if we're feeling stuck on a student too, like, oh, why aren't they making progress or mm-hmm. whatnot? Like, especially looking back at these things um, might help us identify something. Yeah. That we missed. Um, okay, so 
We have some really great strategies in our pocket now to identify these students. We know what to look for. Um, and then we would typically, and this will vary depending on our districts and all of that, but there's typically a way to make referrals. Um, there's typically access to an audiologist. They do hearing screenings and all of that. Do you have a little bit of insight into that process? Do you know if there's any generalizations or tips for success there? Okay. In terms of tips, I definitely suggest trying to have a really strong rapport with your students' families because that is who you're going to reach out to. I would speak first to um, your students' team, their teachers, anyone else who works with them and see if what you're seeing is what they're seeing also. And then um, hopefully you do have that relationship with the parents that you can either call them or have a conversation face-to-face and talk about what you're seeing and how you feel that there's a potential that maybe something else is going on. And, and just to rule that out, that you would recommend them go see an audiologist. Um, and I always keep like a sticky note of like audiologists who are in my area. That way I have some direct numbers to give them. Um, obviously it depends on their insurance. But yeah, the, the most important thing to actually getting your student to the audiologist is that relationship that you're going to have with the parent and you have to know them, you know, is it a parent who might feel a little bit, um, might become a little bit defensive or maybe because, you know, you don't want to suggest that the parent didn't pick up on this. So I always say things like, you know, like we're taught to look for these signs. Like it's not something, you know, other people might notice, but we're taught to look for them. You don't want the parent to ever feel like, oh my goodness, how did I miss this? And someone who sees my student twice a week for 30 minutes noticed. You want it to be more of like an open conversation where everyone feels comfortable. Yeah. And like we were talking about before, we can say how like we it's easy to assume that it's something else that's causing those difficulties, whether mm-hmm. it's um, a language delay or autism or attention deficit. And there's so many other potential causes, it makes sense Mm -hmm. that it could be missed. Like there's obviously a reason why Um, it's not always super obvious. So I think that might help too. Right. Especially because our students who do have autism or, or a learning disability or a language delay, those are the kids who are especially difficult to test. So that's Mm -hmm. just another reason why it can go undiagnosed for so long. It can be hard for even, you know, audiologists to, to be able to determine sometimes if they're doing like a behavior audiogram, it's, it's difficult. Yeah. Yeah. That's super helpful. Um, okay. So now that we like, we've identified these students, we know who has a hearing loss. What are some of the first things that an SLP needs to know if they do have a child with a hearing loss on their caseload? So I try to put myself in the shoes of like an SLP who works maybe in like a school who has no hearing loss kids on their caseload and then pop one comes to district. And the first thing I would say is do not be afraid. It's really intimidating to get a kid on your caseload with a diagnosis that you're unfamiliar with. So don't be afraid. Um, And there's a ton of resources online that I'm going to share with you guys. That way you just have like 
a little bit of reassurance, like, okay, I know where to, I don't know what to do, but I know where to go to find out what to do. Um, their Ash's website is always amazing. Um, Audiology Online is a website that I use and it's a hundred dollars a month and you can watch, there's, there's just hundreds of webinars, um, on the topic of students with hearing loss. And then for your students who might be on the sign language track, there's ASL Pro, there's ASL Savvy. And then for your students who are maybe on the listening and spoken language track, the AG Bell is a wealth of knowledge. So there's a ton of resources. There's even conferences. There's an AG Bell conference every year. And there's even a new conference. I think this is the second year for it specifically for SLPs who sign and SLPs who work with students who sign. So the resources are out there. So the very first thing is do not be afraid. Um, the second thing I would say is to accept that it's okay to have a lot of questions and to acknowledge that maybe you are not fully prepared to work with this student it's okay to ask questions. Um, and another resource for you, there's a Facebook group uh, called Speech Pathologists Who Work With Hearing Impaired and Deaf Students Chat. Uh, I don't completely agree with that name because hearing impaired isn't like politically correct right now anymore. It should never have been, but it's a great resource. And all of the SLPs in that group's work with children who are deaf. So that's another great resource. If you have a question, like everyone is really happy to help you if you reach out. Okay. Moving forward past that, I want to encourage you. I don't know if this is common. Um, at my school, we have it though. The school gets a HIPAA release. And if you have one, um, or if, if you don't, you can ask the parents, but this is one way you can find out your student's audiogram. Uh, and that way you can see specifically what speech frequencies they're they're missing what what do they have access to without amplification or if they are amplified what what do they have access to with amplification um and i would you can find out also like have they been consistently mapped if they have cochlear implants and you can ask the parents what age they consistently started wearing amplification and these are all just tools that you're going to add to your tool belt so you can figure out like where is this child starting at what expectations should I have from this child um and can you get an idea of like how consistent is the family with appointments um also right when you start out again I, I can't stress it enough and I'm sure this is for all diagnoses but but since I'm kind of like in the hearing loss field like family connection and, and relationship is so crucial because you need to find out also what the parents' beliefs are. Um, and in terms of which path, I'm going to keep using that phrase, which path, like the ASL path or the listening and spoken language path, which path has your child's parents chosen? And it's important to, to identify if they've been appropriately educated um, before making that choice. And that education will typically come from either EI or audiologist or a prior SLP. So you want to find out why did your uh, students' families make this choice in terms of language modality? Was there education behind it? Was it an informed decision? Um, maybe the family is deaf. You need to know that right away um, before going forward. Because you might, and I, I find this really often, that unfortunately a lot of parents pick 
a path because they weren't given equal information on both. And as an SLP, that's your role. So you may need to do that education if they haven't received it yet. Um, I think that it's important to remember when you first get a child with hearing loss that you you, you're going to make mistakes, especially, I mean, this is with anything. If, if you're new to it, you're going to make mistakes and it's okay to make those mistakes. But then when you learn something different, that's when you can change and put your new knowledge to use. Um, what else? I found that unfortunately, um, there's like a lot of misinformation since cochlear implants have become very popular. I think that um, unfortunately, a lot of speech therapists and parents don't realize just how much work it takes um, from the whole team to make those cochlear implants be successful in terms of having students um, be on age-appropriate language levels. And a lot of people choose cochlear implants, but then it's not followed through, unfortunately. And then language deprivation happens, and then it looks like language delay. But um, it's not the hearing loss that causes the language delay. It's the language deprivation. So you want to have open communication with your parents to make sure that that child is having so much language at home, um, be it sign language, be it um, spoken language, or if the child has additional needs, be it AAC. So parent education and also coming to the table unbiased. You know, when I started in um, my school, I was so pro, I was, I was so strong on the ASL and I had to learn that that's my view and it might not be the view of everybody around me. So come to the table unbiased, but bring equal information about both options for your families and for your teachers. Um, and you need to learn, don't be afraid to touch the amplification, the Bajas, the hearing aids, the cochlear implants. Um, you're not, you need to touch them and feel them and, and you yourself put them on and off the child to like fully become comfortable using them and helping your child learn how to use them because that's how you'll teach your students to advocate for themselves. Um, also, once you know what kind of amplification your student is using and the company, you can go to that company's website for simple information on how to troubleshoot because you're going to end up becoming like the go-to person. Like you'll see, like if the hearing aid isn't working, like someone's going to bring it to you and you're going to pray like it's just the battery, but like maybe it won't be the battery. Maybe the mold is clogged or there's a couple of like easy ways to troubleshoot. So I would definitely go to the company's website and learn how to do that also. And that will give you a little bit more confidence. Um, what else should an SLP need to know if they have a child with hearing loss? Try to make your room as um, not distracting as possible. You don't want it to be so noisy if you are working with a child who is listening in spoken language. Um, what else? You're going to want to see if the child, again, if they're listening in spoken language path, you're going to want to see if they qualify for an FM system to increase the speech to noise ratio. Um, oh, I know, Marisha, I really wanted to remember to tell your your followers this, but um, 
if you get a student who has a hearing loss and they seem like their language is totally normal and their test scores are coming out that they're expressive and receptive is totally normal, I would encourage you to not discharge them right away because one thing that a lot of people might not know is that children with hearing loss, they they often struggle with things like subtleties of language, uh, jokes, sarcasm. Um, also, we were talking about like intonation and tone, things like that, and especially advocacy. So those are all things that you can work on in your speech room and you can make goals for that are kind of separate from that expressive and receptive section. Um that a lot of people don't realize that is also, it's it's commonly seen in students with hearing loss that that is an area that they struggle with. And also, um, you know, listening in noise. So that's something you can work on with them also. And the only other thing I can think of is that when you get a new student and you're kind of like reviewing their old speech file or their testing, just to remember that it might not be like a true representation of their skills because it is really difficult to sometimes test these students, especially students who use American Sign Language. There's just not enough standardized tests, unfortunately, for that population at this time. So you don't know exactly how they were tested, what it was based on, and if it was fair for them. I see a lot of kids coming in who use ASL, but the person who tested them wasn't fluent and the score doesn't really reflect who they are as a person. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a really good thing to keep in mind. Super helpful. Um, and then, bef- or did you have any other I strategies? think that that, you know, I think that when you, when you're first starting with a child, I think that those are the most important things to try to keep in mind. Awesome. Super helpful. Like I'm, typing away here like, oh, I want to remember this and this and this. Um, so thank you so much. You're and before we dive into like these strategies are really helpful in getting started and just things that we can implement um, kind of on both ends of the spectrum, I guess. But can you, before we dive into more of the treatment strategies, can you break down the two different paths that you were talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So I call it paths. I'm not sure if everyone calls it that, but it just is a nice, clear visual for myself anyway to understand. Um, It's basically like the two language modalities. So when I worked at my school for the deaf, there was kind of two tracks, two paths of, of classrooms. There would be classrooms geared for students who were going to become hopefully fluent users of American Sign Language, and that was going to be their language. And then there was a pathway, you know, a track of classrooms where students would be put if their goal, their family's goals for them was for them to become listening and spoken language users. So these are the students who were receiving that auditory verbal therapy and and classroom strategies. Those were your students who, um, for the most part, were not being exposed to American Sign Language. And right now, with the um, trends that, that we're seeing, there's a lot more students who are on a track, who are placed on a track for auditory verbal and listening and spoken language uh, than there are for students who are on an American Sign Language track. Um, and again, this is for a lot of different reasons. 
um, when a child, when a baby is diagnosed as having hearing loss, it's, it's traumatic for the families. You know, they go through a grieving stage because unless, unless the family is deaf, if it's a hearing family, you know, they go, this is not what they expected. And they go through those stages of grief. And a lot of times they're bombarded with information about hearing aids and cochlear implants. And they see success stories. Um, but unfortunately the success stories are not for everyone. And there's a huge population right now of children who are deaf, who don't know sign language because they're on that listening and spoken language track, but they have enormous, enormous language gaps for multiple reasons. And the, one of the main reasons is that, um, because they didn't get exposure to language early enough because, you know, a lot of kids who are, who receive cochlear implants, they don't receive it until, um, nine months, 10 months, 11 months, 12 months. Sometimes they don't receive it until they're three or four. Um, and they don't get full access with their hearing aids. Students, a lot of children with hearing aids, they, they're not getting full access to the speech frequencies and how can you learn to speak and, and have verbal language if you can't hear it? So I think, again, unfortunately, there's a lot of kids on that listening and spoken language track who who should have not gone on to it. Students who maybe had had no hearing until they were five, and now they're given hearing aids, and it's it's late for them. Not everyone, but there's there's a large number of students who are in that listening and spoken track because the, the parents are really just eager for their child to speak, um, but down the line, the gap grows bigger and bigger. And that's why I was saying before, you need to have a family who is fully on board to follow through with every therapy strategy, with all of the appointments, um, with everything. It's a huge undertaking. Um, So the auditory verbal track or pathway is, is very large and very full. And the track with American Sign Language is much less so because the children who are on it might come from deaf parents, but that's unusual. There's not a huge number of children from deaf parents. It could be also children who, have, who are multiply handicapped. We see a lot of kids with cerebral palsy or autism on this track also. Um, or there's there's a, a small number of children on the American Sign Language track, but it's kind of more like a total communication track because parents who want both for their children are providing them with American sign language from birth. And that way there's no, no time, no gap in in the language exposure. And they're also giving them, um, listening and spoken language. So it's kind of like TC, like they're getting both. And it's kind of like in, in the specialty, they call it bye-bye, like a bilingual bicultural, um, kind of realm. So that's something we're seeing also. So when I say pathways, I'm kind of talking about the language modality and also like the culture. Yeah, that's super interesting. And have you noticed anything different with, and I don't know, I'm not totally familiar with all of the research in this area either, Mm -hmm. but is there, because I think it makes sense. It's better to have something versus nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that the like total communication path makes sense where you're combining both of them, but has, right. have you seen anything in the research, like comparing those paths or just from what you've seen in your experience in terms of kind of, I mean, it might be a little bit of bias there, but in mm-hmm. terms of your preference. So what 
there is more and more research coming out. It's a little bit difficult. And I'm not the, I, I am sure there are people who can speak better on this than I can. But the research that I'm seeing is coming from sources that lean heavily. So I'm seeing research that is showing the benefits of American Sign Language from birth and that being the child's um, L1. I'm seeing a lot of research coming out of Gallaudet, which uh, is Gallaudet is um, a famous, famous university in Washington, D.C., and it's a deaf university. So they are obviously huge promoters of American Sign Language. And then I'm seeing research showing the importance of soul auditory verbal therapy. And when I say soul, I'm, I'm saying um, A.G. Bell, they, they believe in only exposing these children on this pathway to listening and spoken language. They discourage a child being exposed to American Sign Language. So research coming from them, Again, you know, you you have to find kind of someone who's not from either. <laughs> it's tricky, um, but I'm sure that there is a hopefully research out there. I haven't seen it recently, but it could be there and I just haven't seen it, you know? Yeah, it's so interesting. Like I know when I was going through school, uh, we got to watch some different movies and documentaries and mm-hmm. I think we even had some different guest speakers and this conversation is bringing back all of those discussions because it is like you have a lot of components here. It's kind of just like the nitty gritty of what we do, but then it's also that whole culture component is embedded with all of it. And it just makes it a little bit trickier. Yeah. It's super, I, I really think it might be the most controversial niche of our entire field. And Sometimes it it proves me wrong because, of course, even though I try to keep it, you know, contained, there have been students in the past who I've worked with who have been, say, they come to me, they're two or three, and they're on that auditory verbal track. And I'm like, oh, my God, this child should be on the ASL track. And sometimes, you know, years later, I'm still confident that that they should have been and, and a mistake was chosen for them. But then every once in a while, there's children who... Uh, are super successful with the auditory verbal therapy because their parents really were on board. But for those kids who it didn't work for it, they're going to have lifelong uh, challenges because they just don't have the language. And that's really, really horrifyingly sad to see. Yeah. So it's, it's really difficult. Yeah, it's really difficult. That's why I keep saying like you have to have a good relationship with the family because if they've picked that auditory verbal track, but they're the kid is coming to school every day and their hearing aid is dead or their cochlear implant is is miss or it's it's in the backpack. You can tell like this family's either doesn't have the proper education to know what they need to be doing, or the family is maybe too overwhelmed in a different area of their life. Um, to ha- to commit to this track, and that's when you really need to educate them on American Sign Language. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, because at the end of the day, when you take that cochlear implant off or the hearing aids off, you're standing in front of a child who is deaf. So, yeah, a lot of controversy in this area. You know, if it was if it was up to me, I would say TC all the way, total communication, ASL, and listening spoken language. And and you raise a bilingual, bicultural child, and that way, when they get older, they they don't feel like they're missing their identity. 
you know, they're, they're already part of the deaf community and they're part of the hearing community. I really just think it's the best of both worlds and you've avoided language deprivation. But then I remind myself, this is very easy for me to say because I'm already fluent. So it's, I'm sure it's, it's very challenging for people who have children who are deaf and now they also have to learn a new language, but there's so many resources out there and it is possible to do. Yeah. Do you, cause that's a really good um, mentioned there too. Like, do you have any favorite resources to help other people learn, like other people on the team? Because you mentioned like ASL Pro, mm-hmm. ASL Savvy. Are those ones that you would so, share? Yeah, those are great websites for learning single words. But of course, single words are not a language. Um, Correct. I'm racking my brain. I know that there's a wonderful woman in SLP. Um, her name is Adrienne, and she does have an online class that I've heard is excellent. So I, I think her website is Learning with Adrienne. I feel fairly certain. Um, I feel fairly certain. Besides that, I can't think of them, but I will go back and look, and then maybe we can just add them, like add in a caption Um to this segment where people can go to learn more. Uh, and also like co- local colleges most likely offer American Sign Language. And I mean, the best way to learn, the very, very best way to learn is to learn from somebody who is deaf. I know my local library has classes from um, a deaf man. He teaches them. But again, like, you know, depending on where you live, you might need to rely more heavily on, on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I actually took Adrian's course. Oh, how um, funny. It, yeah. It's learnwithadrian.com. And we'll also add that in the show notes. And I think that course is more geared towards toddlers. So that would, oh, okay. and that would be perfect for those like getting started. Mm-hmm. A great Because the videos are just really top notch and easy to go mm-hmm. through. Yeah. Um, but I think it, I don't know. I I'm, I think it would be amazing to have, but I guess it's still a good starting point, but the vocabulary mm-hmm. is kind of geared more towards, towards those young. younger kids, I think. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. I'm trying to think. I really, yeah, the best possible way to learn is definitely from somebody who's deaf. I follow a lot of people on Instagram, a lot of deaf, uh, deaf teachers, deaf SLPs. Of course, like right now, my brain is totally blanking on them. I know one of them, is um adventures in deaf ed um but i'll i'll look up the rest in like my instagram and maybe we can add them also and there are a couple of people who are deaf who do teach common phrases on their instagram and they post like every single day because it's you you want to learn how to sign in influency in sentences and and phrases mm-hmm. and not just word 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 yeah yeah and i think that's a really great idea because then you just get little snippets because mm-hmm. that's how you learn any language is yeah. just taking a little and some immersion and everything I think is definitely effective. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. if just getting those snippets on a day-to-day basis, I imagine would help a lot too. Definitely. ASL, it's a little tricky. You know, if you want to, if you're, if you really want to learn Spanish, you can move yourself to, to a country that is Spanish speaking or, or some other language, but ASL, you can't do that so much you know, besides picking yourself up and moving to a a community that has a lot of deaf representation. I know there's like a huge community in Texas. There's a huge community in DC, but 
it's not like, you know, you're not going to go there for two months or three months. It's not as easy as picking up and, and going abroad to learn a language and immerse, immerse yourself, immerse, emerge, immerse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that totally makes sense. And then we definitely won't have time to dive into all of the strategies for all of the different paths. And yeah. like, I wish just magically like disperse <laughs> all of your knowledge. Um, but do you have a a few more tips that we can use when we're approaching treatment with these students? Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to give like general, general tips, like what you're saying. A lot of our children who are deaf or hard of hearing, they're so used to not being successful. It's very sad. So I always use extra, extra, extra positive reinforcement with this population. Uh, verbal praise, high fives, fist bumps, um, dances, stickers, a lot. You want any little thing that your student does with success, you want to praise it. Um, a lot of books, unfortunately, um, the average person who is deaf never gets past a fourth grade reading level. So you want to start exposure to literacy as fast as possible um, and encourage your students' parents to read them a ton of books also. Um, also, I, I know I keep mentioning advocacy, but I start my students right away. Like It doesn't matter if they're two. I use the correct names of their equipment right away. There's, I don't call it your, don't put your ears on. It's not an ear. It's a hearing aid. Put your hearing aid on. Um, what's wrong is the tubing. You know, you want to use words, tubing, microphone, FM system, Roger, implant, magnet. You want to use the, the real vocabulary so that they can then use it. Cause when they leave your program and, and they have a new teacher or a new SLP, they need to be able to specifically tell the adult what's wrong, what's, what's happening with their device. Um, do not let them fake you out of all my students. My students with hearing loss are pros at following a familiar routine to hide and mask the concept of the, the fact that they can't hear the directions. So you need to try and sabotage them every once in a while. And instead of telling them, you know, hang your jacket up or put your backpack on the floor, like you do every single day, tell them something ridiculous, like, stand on top of your jacket or dump your backpack upside down and see if they listened and heard you and they do it or if they're following the routine. Um, what else is super important that I'm trying? Oh, multi-sensory approach for our kids with hearing loss. You want to have a lot of hands-on tactile activities. Um, for your kids with who are on that ASL path, I, I really like, I can't stress this enough. You want to give them role models. You want to expose them to other children or people who are deaf and use American Sign Language. Um, there's books out there that show kids with hearing aids. Um, I've seen people add hearing aids or cochlear implants using like puffy paint onto dolls, baby dolls. Uh, American Girl now makes a, a hearing aid. I think it's a hearing aid or a cochlear implant. I can't remember. That attaches onto like the American Girl dolls. Um, YouTube videos. There's so many YouTube videos now of children who are deaf uh, signing like fables and common stories. So you want to expose them to other people in their world and in, in the world who also use American Sign Language, so that they don't feel isolated or they don't feel like they're not gonna um, fit in to the world. You know what I mean? Like you want to show them that there's other people out there who use sign language, you know, encourage the parents. There's so many 
camps for kids with hearing loss, sleepaway camps. You want to encourage them to find other kids out there who are using the same modality and look like them also. Yeah, that's so helpful. I really like that. And I think that's important. Like they talk about that community with a variety of different um, disorders or delays. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I know they have like a lot of groups for kids who stutter right. and all that. And I think I building that community and finding other kids who are like them is um, incredibly helpful and empowering yeah. too. Definitely. Um, yeah. I definitely agree with you. Um, trying and- to think if there was anything else. The only other thing I can say is um, again, like to use functional language. And I, I stress this, especially with your kids who are on the American sign language track. Like if you yourself don't sign um, and there's no interpreter at your school, you know, to try really hard to, to learn as much sign as you can. And that way you're not just giving those content words. Yeah. And then, so you talked a little bit about the ASL path and what you would do there. What, do you have any other suggestions for the auditory path, auditory path? Like, do you have any ideas of like, how do you figure out where to start with that? Or I know you've talked a lot about bringing in parents and getting them on board. But I'm just, I'm curious if you could give the listeners just a little bit of an idea of what that might look like. Absolutely. So let's say a kid walks in um, aided or has implants and they're on that auditory verbal track and you're like, I don't know what you hear. So there's something called the Ling Six. And I know like we barely touched on this in school. And yet for those kids who are on that auditory verbal track, like the Ling Six is very crucial. And it's these sounds, ah, e, ooh, m, sh, s. And those six sounds go across the speech frequencies. They hit the whole range. So if they can hear all six of those sounds, you can feel somewhat comfortable that the child hears all of the speech frequencies. Um, for, chi- for children who are nonverbal, you're going to start to teach them how to, when you hear a sound, drop this item in a bucket. I use blocks usually. When you hear, I mean, any sound, Marisha, like if you hear um, me clap, and obviously they can't see you at this point, like you should be sitting mm-hmm. behind them. Um, if they hear a loud noise, drop the block in the bucket, drop the block in the bucket. You're going to start doing this hand over hand to train them to do it. And then you're going to do full tactile prompt and then you're going to do a partial. Maybe your hand is just going to be on their elbow to prompt them to drop it when they hear the sound. And then you're going to slowly start moving away. And after a while, and I mean a while, like this could take a couple of sessions. Um, they're going to figure out when I hear the noise, I'm going to drop it in the bucket. And once they can do that, that's when you're going to do the exact same activity with the Ling Six sounds. So you're going to sit behind them somewhere that they can't see you. Also, like preferably if you have a mirror, like, a, you know, you don't want to sit where they can see your mouth through the mirror. Um, and you're going to say quietly those, mm, uh, ooh, you know, one at a time. Mm, and then you're going to wait and you're going to see, do they drop it in the bucket? I also do some, some, empty sounds because my kids are smart and they know there's six of them. You want to like separate. You don't want to say a sound at the exact same increment. Like every three seconds, you're saying a sound. You want to space it out. You want to go quieter, louder, sometimes make no sound at all. And let me tell you, some of the kids are going to drop that block in the bucket because they want praise and they know what's expected of them. And that's when a kid is faking you out. So once they can do those six sounds, the next thing, and I'm just going to 
I'm just going to jump into this really quickly, is that those sounds have associated items with them. So ah is an airplane. These are like um, items that, that are always associated. Mm is an ice cream cone, on and on. Ooh is a ghost. And you're going to want the child to learn that ah is always associated with the airplane. So it becomes like a matching. And that's how they start to learn that sound has meaning, that that sound actually means an item. So that's where you start, Ling six. That is super helpful. And that makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And obviously, if their equipment's not working, you can't do that task. (laughs) You know, that'll work. (laughs) Yeah, because then it, they, yeah, they won't be getting that. Right. (laughs) Exactly. And you, you, one of the things is you never want them to leave on like a down. Like, make sure that if they're having a hard time, you give them like four that you know that they're going to get correct and then send them on their way. Cause it's hard. It's hard work. It's, it's very difficult work for them. You know? Yeah. I bet that's really tiring. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is. It's, it's, it's super tiring. It's basically like if you wear glasses, like at the end of the day, when you take your glasses off, it's kind of like, it's, it's hard work. It's you're training, you're training all day, you know? Mm-hmm. Yes. And especially in a classroom where there's mm-hmm. so much going on. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But it pays off for some. For some, it's really successful, you know? Yeah. And can you give us a little bit of an idea of, because I'm like super, super curious now, um, but what would that progression, just kind of like a quick snapshot of the progression. So we'd start with just general noises, then move to the six sounds. Right. And And then once they start. mm -hmm. From the six sounds, you move to single words, and then you move to stereotypical utterances, and those are your utterances that are common phrases. Sit down, stand up, happy birthday, bless you, I want more common short phrases like that. That's the next thing because the child starts to learn the the rising and and lowering rhythm of those phrases and memorizes them that way. And so there's also cards that you can use to match those utterances. And then of course you want to take the cards away because you want to start being more functional in real life. You know, you're going to, they're going to walk into your room and you're going to tell them, sit down, turn the lights off, turn the lights on, things like that. So common short phrases. After that, you're going to move on to single core um, vocabulary Um, common cat dog chair apple things that are common and then you slowly gradually move up to short phrases and then once they seem to have that you're going to start doing um questions and and then it kind of becomes language based like with what most people are familiar with you know and asking and answering questions comprehension of longer phrases short stories things of that nature yeah so helpful That makes a lot of sense. And then I know this varies a lot, but like what's the fastest progression you've seen like through that initial sound step to maybe, I don't know, whichever step you you can think of. Like can we expect that to take like several years or? It can take. Like what do you typically see? It can. It really is. So – most of the children that I've worked with have been deaf plus. And what that means is that they're deaf and they have um, a disability such as such as autism or cerebral palsy or a language disorder separate from the deafness. Um, and so if there is something additional that, that the child has, a diagnosis, it's going to take a lot 
longer. If the child is only deaf and, and there's no language delay and they haven't been deprived of language as an infant, they could go through this. They could move through it quickly. Um, you, you really, the goal is for the child to make one year's progress in one year's time. And sometimes it happens, but it's, it's super individual. And it, again, I know I keep saying it and I, I, I sound like a broken record, but a lot of it comes down to if the family is keeping up with the appointments and if the family has that equipment on all the time. And a lot of times the kids don't want to wear it. So it's, it's a struggle. It's not just the parents being negligent or it's not a priority to them. A lot of times it's the kids put up a fight, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So it can be, it can be quick. You're hoping for a year's progress and a year's time, but, um, for some students, it takes a lot longer, especially if they're not receiving amplification until an older age, three, four, five. I, I see a lot of kids who come over from other countries. Um, they come either without any equipment or their equipment's been broken, or maybe it's super outdated equipment. And they've now had a, a big time gap where they haven't had language exposure. And unfortunately then you know, they're starting kind of like with an extra disadvantage. Yeah. You know, that makes sense. Yeah. Awesome. And then one more question about like the two quote unquote paths. So Mm -hmm. if you are doing that dual approach, Mm -hmm. how do you structure that in the sessions? Like, do you do a mix of both within each session or do you typically like rotate it out or do you go through phases? Yeah. What does that look like when you're doing that? Um, there's a couple of different approaches. You could do a schedule where there's a day for ASL and there's a day for auditory verbal and then a day for ASL. You never, never want to do both simultaneously. Like you never literally, you literally don't want to be signing at the same time that you're speaking because the syntax of the two languages is, is different. It's impossible. So if I'm signing, but I'm also speaking for some reason, one of those languages is suffering. And then what you have is a child who's not being exposed to the correct grammar of the language. So if you do want to, let's say you're reading a book and there's a concept that you want the child to get in both languages, you're going to do a sandwich approach. So you might sign it, voice off, and then speak it hands down. And then again, voice off, sign it. Or you could do the opposite. You could speak it hands down, then sign it, voice off, and then speak it one last time with hands down. So a lot of sandwiching, but I prefer to break it up like solely by sessions because for my own brain, it's easier that way. You know what I mean? Like it's just easier for me to separate for myself the two languages in that way. And that way um, I can just flick on my ASL brain or I can flick on my English brain rather than going back and forth constantly. Yeah. And I bet if it's confusing for us, then mm-hmm. it's probably even more confusing for the student. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so that's, yeah, if we're feeling a little overwhelmed or confused, then um, I think that's <laughs> a super good strategy. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how you, that's, that would be my best um, tip for working on that for, for bye-bye. Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Well, I've loved getting to talk about all of these topics and I feel like I have like I've dabbled, like I said, I've dabbled a little bit, but it's been really helpful to get a little bit more of a walkthrough and kind of piecing all of the different pieces together. So thank you for that. Oh, you're so welcome. And then I'm curious, do you have any last tips or things that we didn't get to talk about that you wanted to share or anything you just really want to emphasize? I think what I would, would most want to emphasize, and I, 
I did say it before, but I would, I would say it again is, is to not be afraid of the unknown, to not be afraid of the equipment, to not be afraid to say to a parent or, or a teacher, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know what to do, but I have the resources and I'm going to go find out. And we'll talk about this again in a week, in a day. Um, I think it's really important to kind of also, um, to tell yourself, like, it's okay that I don't know everything. Like the speech and language field is just, it's astronomical. You know, I don't know a single thing about voice, but you know, I, I know where to go if I, if I need to, you know? So I think that's like the best thing about our field. Like it's huge. And the, the SLPs in it are so eager and so willing to help each other out that it's okay to say, I don't know what to do or, or I'm going to, you know, you, you don't want to fake it till you make it in this instance, because like every, every second with a kid who with a hearing loss is crucial because time is ticking. So you want to reach out to the resources that I, that I spoke about on Facebook. And then you and I will go over the ones on my Instagram later and we can add those. But yeah, just, just to, to keep an open mind that maybe you're, you're going to need to like look outside of what you already know in order to, to best service this particular population. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And we really get to be problem solvers as speech language pathologists, and we get to exercise that muscle regularly. And this mm-hmm. is a perfect opportunity to work on that. And yes. the good thing is that there are so many resources out there, and we can totally figure it out and work together and provide awesome services for these students. Definitely. Um, okay, awesome. So, to wrap up, where can listeners find out more about what you do and kind of get the resources that you were talking about? So I love Instagram and I post just about every day and I show like in real life what I'm doing in therapy. So my Instagram is SLP Lauren DiBiase. And then I also have a blog where I kind of um, share more in detail about the actual activities that I'm using. I have a lot of students who are doing like life skills. Um, and my blog is www.slplaurendibiase.com. And then I am a teacher author. So I have my TPT store where I share a lot of resources for deaf, hard of hearing, but also, um, my second passion is life skills, social skills. So my resources are mostly in that area. And my store is my store name. So um, Lauren DiBiase. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing. And then we will share all of these resources in the show notes too. So you can just go there and click all of the different links that we mentioned. Um, And that will be at slpnow.com slash 16. And yeah, thank you again, Lauren. This was so incredibly helpful. Thanks for listening to the SLP Now podcast. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. So yes, you can earn ASHA CEUs for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with your SLP friends. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to get the latest episodes sent directly to you. See you next time.